Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonabello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance and more, and GEICO is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to GEICO.com or contact your local agent today. The Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Exxon Radio Show or endorsed in any manner by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, the Exxon Broadcast Network, its affiliated networks, stations, employees, or advertisers. All Hit Radio. Welcome to the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. And welcome to the X One, everyone. I am Rob McConnell, and for the next four hours, I'm your host and your guide as together we cross the time-space continuum to this place that I call the X Zone. It's a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. It's a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. The X Zone comes to you Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern, right here on the X Zone Broadcast Network, Talk Star Radio Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, and iHeart Radio. If you'd like to send me an email, exxon at exxonradiotv.com on all social media sites, Exxon Radio TV. And to find about the programming we have available for you 24 7 365 on the Exxon Broadcast Network, visit www.xzbn.net. My guest this hour is Dave Outlandish, and Dave was born in southern Alabama and lived there between there and Oregon as a child. He was introduced to ceremonial magic by his father, who uh, were raised Mormon for the structure. He learned, a cult, he learned occultism and demonology as a teenager, making his pocket money reading cards and selling charms. 
He joined the army and went to Iraq, and after coming back, went to school for a while before deciding to work full-time in his chosen field of occultism and demonology. First of all, Dave, I want to thank you very much for your service. Hey, well, thank you so much. And uh, wa- welcome to the Exxon. Yeah, thank you so much for that, too. All right, Dave, um, what was it that kind of brought you to the point in your life when you where you said to yourself, you know what, I, w- I want to get into demonology and occultism full-time. This is where I've decided to, to focus myself. Well, so like I said, when I was a child, my the, the Keys of Enoch were in the house. My father was into this ceremonial magic stuff, and it was just kind of a commonality in my life. Mm-hmm. And during my studies in the Mormon church, we studied to be missionaries. They all go on a mission when they turn 18. So during the course of my studies, I came across sections of the Bible that specifically talk about demons, uh, specifically the instance where Jesus casts the demons into the pigs, legion, right? Right. And so curious about how, as, as a Mormon kid, I was expected to deal with demons. I asked church officials, and I wasn't given an answer at all. Hmm. And so, you know, that brought me to go get the Legamaton, the Lesser Keys of Solomon, the Goetia. And, you know, figuring, being an aspiring priest as that I was, I figured that I could, you know, conjure one of these demons up and force it to tell me what was going on. My experience was absolutely nothing like I expected. But the, the resulting experience and the experiences after that led me to believe that even if we have no idea what these things really are, they are something. Could you share that experience with us? Well, experiences with demons, they vary across the board between, you know, events that people will, you, like for me personally. Yes. Experience that I, that I occurred when I was a teenager. It was intense. A lot of it may or may not have been hallucinatory, right? Mm -hmm. There were things floating around. There were things moving around the room. I was hearing voices. I was experiencing things that didn't seem possible, right? And knowing that what it would take for an invisible entity to physically lift an object in a room, I can't say for a fact that 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 actually occurred. What I can say for a fact is that I, with my senses intact, felt as if it did. Wow, that is one heck of an experience. Um, Let me ask you this then. A lot of people talk about when they go on to ghost investigations that they come across demonic entities. And uh, do ghosts and, and demons live in a sort of mutual relationship on the other side? Well, like I said, uh, no one really knows exactly, right? What mm-hmm. we have is eyewitness accounts as evidence. Right. And that's pretty much all we have. We don't have a shred of something tangible that we can touch and look to and say, well, here is, you know. What we do have is a lot of eyewitness accounts. And a lot of eyewitness accounts place demons and ghosts in a similar arrangement in the afterlife or the other side or the spirit world. Because a lot of people who go into haunted areas will encounter both ghostly entities and they will encounter things that they – typically will describe as demonic. Whether or not these entities are actually demons or if they're simply violent, sort of malignant entities or not, right. I mean, that's debatable, but seems to be that ghosts and demons inhabit a similar type of area. So how does 
how does something become a demonic entity and other things just become ghosts? That's a good question, and I do have a theory about that, and I think it's similar to the way that a person becomes a Satanist versus just a regular person. Oh. It's a matter of choice, right? If a demon or a spiritual entity, for instance, mm -hmm. decides, hey, I'm going to worship the devil, and I'm going to go around to these sorcerers' places, and I'm going to chill out with them when they start doing their satanic rituals, then I'm pretty sure that makes it a demon. You know, and it's the same thing. If a person decides that they want to take on a satanic philosophy and go hang around people when they're doing satanic rituals, that pretty much makes them a satan. Why would somebody want to hang around a place where they're doing satanic rituals or become a satanic ritual uh, invoker themselves? That's another good question. And there are a lot of reasons why people would. I mean, Satanism is a pretty broad religion. We have the Church of Satan, for instance. Mm -hmm. They're atheists. Their rituals are psychodramas and designed to help people get over traumas in their lives. But they don't believe in magic. They don't believe the devil's a real entity. And then we have the Temple of Satan, for instance. They're mostly political entity. They leverage the power of the satanic symbol to cause change in government policies. Then we have kind of in the middle, theistic Satanists, or what I, the group that I fall into. And... We essentially reject the notion that the devil is some kind of man-devouring monster that seeks to destroy the earth. We see the devil more as a figure of rebellion against the status quo. We see the devil as a figure of self-empowerment and self-betterment. Mm -hmm. So really it's a matter of perspective. Let me ask you this then, Dave. Based yeah. on your experience and based on your beliefs, who or what is Satan? Hmm. And that's a really tricky question, too, because, again, I don't know. Okay. No one really does know, and that's kind of the nature of the occult, right? Well, is the Satan that you believe to be out there, is, is that the Satan that is depicted in such a negative way in the Bible? Well, actually, probably is, but... Dave, are you there? We kind of lost you. Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Can you oh, hear me now? Yes, I can. Thank you. Okay. Well, like I said, the, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that the Satan that we believe in is a similar entity to the one that's described in the Bible. I mean, the Bible is a book that's got an agenda. Mm -hmm. The Bible is a book that, that, you know, it's got a point that it's trying to make. So I take any kind of mention of the enemies of God with a grain of salt in a book that was written by God. Uh, point well taken. Point well taken. What kind of evidence do you see in today's world that Satan is is busy at work? Personally, I see there's a great uptick in the amount of not just satanic symbolism and literature that we're seeing mm -hmm. arise in popular culture, right? But we're also seeing Satan taken as a symbol, not a supernatural entity, right? Specifically with the Church of Satan and the Temple of Satan. Right. We see a lot of people who are rallying behind the banner of Satan as an opposition to what they feel is a repressive kind of moral majority that Christianity has had over the world for the past, you know, however long you want to consider it. Uh, so go on. I, I, I think that when we look at the uptick in the, this kind of rebellious attitude against the status quo, we mm -hmm. see 
if you believed Satan was a real entity, I'd say that you could see his, the evidence of his activity there. So it's all a matter of perception and belief. Really, I think everything is. Yeah. All right, Dave, stand by, my friend. You and I have to take our first break. Index Nation, our guest of this hour, is Dave Outlandish. And if you'd like to find out more about Dave, visit him on Instagram at Dave Outlandish. That's Dave Outlandish, and he's on Instagram. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell. We're coming to you from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, on the Talkstar Radio Network, Exxon Broadcast Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, and iHeartRadio. Listen, coming soon on Simul TV, the X-Zone TV channel will be 24-7, 365. And if you have any favorite shows or if you have any favorite subjects that you would like us to include in the X-Zone TV channel programming, send me an email, X-Zone at com, and I'll get back to you and I'll certainly share your information with our good friends in the TV section of our programming department. Dave Outlandish and I return talking more about the occult and demonology here in the X-Zone. Don't go away. Dave Outlandish is our special guest explanation on Instagram. He is Dave Outlandish, and that is all one word. We're talking about occultism and demonology this hour. And um, do you really, do you have to believe in the devil if you want to make a curse? Uh, no, I don't think you have to believe in anything at all, really. Now, as far as curses go, yeah, that's an interesting, that's an interesting subject. And, uh, Dave, we, we lost you again, Dave. Where did you go? Oh, you got me back now? Yeah, I got you back now. Excellent. Okay. So, so a curse is an interesting thing in that they're supposed to do something that's very visible, right? Mm -hmm. When you do a curse and you do it on someone, you know if it works or not, right? Because if their life takes a turn for the worse, you know the curse works, right? So, but the thing about curses is, is that you don't even have to do magic at all to have the effects of a curse take place. All you really have to do is convince somebody that they have been cursed. And once they're convinced through culturally appropriate means that they have been cursed, then they begin to display the nocebo effects associated with that particular curse. This is all based on, on real specific cultural triggers, right? So I would say you don't even have to believe in magic to successfully curse someone. So you mean like a... Uh a voodoo doll or some other sort of representation that would lead somebody to believe that there is a curse upon them. Exactly. Now, do I believe in mind bullets, for instance? Maybe. I haven't seen anything that really suggests they don't exist. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing this work for a while and I've seen some weird stuff. But the point is they don't have to exist for my work to, to be applicable, right? Like you can use a sigil to make someone feel like they have more confidence, feel like they are stronger and more prepared for the day. That placebo effect, even if they know it's a placebo effect, mm -hmm. if they have the right cultural triggers, 
then it'll still happen and they'll get the positive effects from it. So, so really, yeah. So it, it so, doesn't matter if they believe it or not. So it's like if you confess it, you will possess it. Yeah, pretty much. In the sense that our minds are able to do some pretty miraculous things on their own without the need for mind bullets. Right. Okay. Um, let me just ask you this. Uh, how do you conduct paranormal investigations, Dave? Well, so I'm not necessarily a paranormal investigator. Oh, okay. My LinkedIn says paranormal instigator, right? Oh, now, instigator. There's I a, see. There's a subtle difference in that when, so a paranormal investigation team, they go into a house, they do their investigation, and they come out of that investigation reasonably certain mm -hmm. that there is an entity in the house, right? Right. So what I do is based on my knowledge of what can trigger nocebo effects in human beings, I go into the house and I produce a ritual intended to agitate the spiritual entities in the house, right? So if they're people and if they were Christian before they died, then a very elaborate, blatantly satanic ritual should make them panic at least, right? Mm -hmm. Especially if they were superstitious before they died. So the idea is, is that with paranormal instigation, we are going to elaborate lengths to try to instigate behavior from these spirits by way of using elaborate, blatantly, you know, blatantly satanic imagery. So what kind of actions or what kind of words or what kind of uh, chants would you use? Well, um, I have a lot of, uh, it really depends mm -hmm. because what we're trying to do, not necessarily, we're not necessarily really trying to do magic, quote unquote, right? Right. We're trying to create triggers that these ghosts, if they exist and if they were people, will find it difficult to ignore. So what we want to do is figure out what language they spoke, right? We want to figure out what kind of culture they were in. And then we want to tailor our rituals specifically so that they will feel a connection to them. Okay, so how do you figure out all of this uh, pre-needed uh, information before you commit the ritual? Like, now, again, that's, that, takes, that takes some work. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, if, a, if an area has a good history to it, there'll be recordings of who these entities may or may not be, right? Right. If we know who died in the house and we know who we're trying to agitate, then there should be information on them. If not, but we are reasonably certain that there is an entity in the house, I mean as certain as we can be about that, then we'll take – we'll look for mediums. Or we'll look for Ouija boards or we'll look for things like that and try to engage the entity beforehand. This is another way to test if the entity is going to be receptive to what we're doing. But what happens if the entity is there but is not receptive to your methods of operation? I mean, and sometimes this happens. And in fact, we would have no way of knowing. If we went into a house and mm -hmm. there was a ghost there and he was just standing there looking at us and we were doing all these scary boo-ha-ha -ha dances and he just kind of, you know... What the heck are these guys doing? We would have yeah. no idea unless he decided to manifest himself in some way, right? So, I mean, sometimes it happens that we go into a house that we put on a big show and nothing occurs. What do the people who own the house think when they see you guys going through your anti-demonic <gasps> well, rituals? They, they're, they're, I notify them. They're notified well in advance about what we intend on doing. We're right. not... I mean, I'm not going into people's houses and setting up covert satanic shrines, and then they come back later like, what is this? Yeah. I mean, 
it's where it ex, I explain in detail specifically what I'm trying to do, mm-hmm. specifically what I'm going to set up, what type of cultural triggers I'm going to be using, just to make sure that they personally aren't going to feel super uncomfortable being in the house afterwards. All right. Tell us about your greatest accomplishment. <laughs> oh, man. See, so a lot of the work that I do that is that has really impressed me has mm-hmm. been for clients. And I have a pretty strict confidentiality clause with my clients and that if they come to me and they say, Hey, I want this spell and then I do a spell for them and then it works mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Um, a lot of the times if they come to me, it's they're they're pretty desperate, right? Like people don't go to demonologists to conjure demons, you know, to make their headaches feel better. Right. Yeah. People come to me with stuff that's that's pretty serious, and a lot of the times they don't even want to talk about it with other people. They don't want to let their families know that they're mm-hmm. involved in this kind of thing. So, unfortunately, most of the most impressive things I feel I've done are veiled behind <laughs> other people's privacy. So you are basically a fixer for your demons. Uh, basically, I uh, kind of a demon broker. Yeah. I mean, demons and spirits, from my experience, they have some commonalities. One of which is pacts. Demons and spirits seem to want to make deals with people. I think that's because it sets a value, right? We don't have a, we, I mean, we don't really have a common language. They don't talk with mouths. They don't have brains in bodies, you know? So we have to find somewhere that we can stand on a level where we know this means this, right? right? And a pact establishes a collective value. So once we've established a pact with a demon, they know what we consider valuable and we know what they consider valuable. And now we can cooperate. How often have you gone into locations, Dave, who where people believe they are, there is a demon or that uh, an occult occurrence has occurred? And what you find out is that it's mostly in the mind of the person, that there is nothing there. I would say that you could argue that 100% of the time that's the case. Really? You could. I mean, since there's no tangible evidence, I can't pick up ghost droppings off the floor and say, oh, look, fresh ghost poop. Here was a ghost, right? So you could really argue that 100% of this is in the mind, but at the same time, 100% of your experience of the world is also in your mind. So just because someone comes to me and says, I have a demon, I don't find any evidence of it, but they are convinced. If they're convinced, then it's it's real to them, and Mm -hmm. I need to take it seriously. So once again, the placebo effect plays a big part in what you're doing. I mean, I think it plays a big part in what every magician does, whether they want to admit it or not. So do you consider yourself a magician or a demonologist? I would consider myself, if I had a a demonologist, as a field of study. If I would consider myself like what type of spell caster am I? I would would call myself a sorcerer because it's more accurate. I deal with disembodied spirits. Mm -hmm. I make charms, mojo, hoodoo, things like that. Typically what a sorcerer would get into. Okay. What is the difference between a sorcerer and a wizard? Well, wizard is a more colloquial term, which is kind of a catch-all, right? So an alchemist may be considered a wizard or an uh, a, may, a magi, a magician may be considered a wizard, but I don't think there's a real specific pinpoint for what a wizard is. It's kind of a more general term. So I, I guess I could call myself a wizard. I like the term wizard. It's a fun word, you know? Yeah. But right. it doesn't really mean anything. So, Dave, uh, during the work that you do, have you noticed any sociological um, 
ties between certain ages or certain groups of people or certain sexes? Or does it go right across the spectrum? Well, I've noticed that as far as what people request of me, Mm -hmm. men typically want to know if they can do what I do, right? So they want information or they want training. Women typically will want me to do things for them because they're not sure if they can do it right or not, right? And the irony of that is, is that women are probably more adept at doing this than guys are, but they're the ones that are more inclined to pay me to do it for them. Interesting topic. Interesting, gentlemen. Dave Outlandish is our guest explanation, and Dave and I will be back on the other side of this break as we continue here in the Exxon from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. And if you would like to um, find out more about Dave, check him out on Instagram uh, just by typing in Dave Outlandish, and that's all one word. Dave Outlandish and I return on the other side of this break talking more about the occult, demonology, and much more as the Exxon continues after this news break. wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast while the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you. Now get a sausage McMuffin, sausage biscuit, sausage burrito, or hash browns. Choose two for $2.50. Enjoy a large iced coffee for just $2. Price of participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Explanation, Dave Outlandish is our special guest this hour. You can find out about Dave on Instagram using Dave Outlandish, all small characters and all together. Dave, um, has there been more demonic activity or Satanistic activity since the advent of the Internet? Uh, and that's a good question, too. I'm not sure if we could really tell. I mean, thanks to the advent of the Internet, we're all hyper-connected now, so... It may seem like there has been more because every now you can go onto a forum and every single forum you go onto, somebody's talking about having a demonic experience. But that may or may not actually mean there's more. It is maybe an indication of our hyperconnectivity. Gotcha. Um, what are some of the signs uh, that parents can pick up on if they believe that one of their kids is into the occult or demonology? Well, I think the first thing that people need to realize is that negative symptoms do not necessarily aren't necessarily, um, uh, you know, something you're always going to get, right? It's not bad for people to entities necessarily, right? So if your kid is having negative symptoms of something, then you should look into it. If they're not having any negative symptoms, if they're doing well in school, if they've got friends, if they're confident, if they have a hobby mm-hmm. that they like, then it shouldn't matter if it's demonology or occultism. Dave, we're having a bit of a problem hearing you again, buddy. Okay. Oh, there he is. My, gr- 
I guess my point is that um, if their kids are happy and healthy and mm-hmm. doing things that they like, then it shouldn't matter if it's occultism or demonology. But if their kids are having problems and if they're having negative effects, then no matter what they're doing, the parents should probably pay attention to that. If the kids are doing fine and everything seems to be working, um, why would they want to get into the occult then? What is the attraction well, to the occult? Oh, I mean, I think it's fascinating personally. The way that, the, I mean, the occult is essentially the study of symbols and how these symbols evoke meaning and experience in people, right? I mean, with art, you're painting a picture and that picture evokes an emotion. With occultism, you're drawing a symbol, you're drawing several symbols, you're mm-hmm. doing a ritual, you're lighting incense. They evoke similar types of experiences. Okay. And so getting into the occult, it, an interest in the occult could be compared to an interest into art. Creating something that can evoke an emotion or a reaction in someone else. Then why does the occult have such a negative connotation in society? Well, I feel like there are a couple of reasons for that. One, I think that you know anyone who seems to have powers that can't be explained it makes people nervous, understandably so. And that's kind of on purpose, right? If you get into a cult, you kind of want to be a little bit scary. Being able to induce a fear effect in someone without actually threatening them or being violent. I mean, it's a pretty powerful, you know, ability to have. So the occult, occultism is, is scary mm-hmm. in the sense that people who are threatened do tend to use it to scare people, right? But another, t- another thing is that we've been, we live in a majority Christian society. So, say, so magic in and of itself is, is condemned in the Bible. And so it would be condemned by the society as a whole. What can one expect when interacting with demons or the devil? Um, I guess it really, really varies on the individual. But I'd say that the commonalities here are that keep in mind that demons are invisible. You're not going to see them. They're not going to manifest in front of you in a big puff of smoke, right? What demons have been described as is Mm -hmm. thoughts, right? So if you interact with demons, you're not going to see a big scaly monster come out of your closet and hand you a crumpled old book. What you might get are a series of thoughts that you may not have had without this interaction. What you might get is inspiration from somewhere that you had no frame of reference for. And then with that new experience, with that new frame of reference, Mm -hmm. now you can make choices in your life that you were unable to make before. Dave, what is your take on the Ouija board? I think the Ouija board is a very powerful tool. I mean, it was the talking board before they, you know, uh, manufactured it as a toy, and it still works exactly the same. So why, once again, the negative connotation about Ouija boards? Why well, is like, it, why I are mean, they frowned upon? So, so you get people who are very impressionable, right? These people have these real active, powerful imaginations. Some people believe that that has a stronger tie to the spirit world. I don't know if that's true or not, but what we do get is people get on Ouija boards and they have these real vivid imaginations mm-hmm. and they have, ex- they have the experience that they expect to have from the Ouija board and the Ouija board itself markets itself as a spooky game. So you get kids, young people with very active imagination, 
Now, whether they are psychic or not, whether they are engaging with entities or not, is debatable. But the point is, is they're very impressionable. They've got a strong imagination, and the game markets itself as being scary. So in your opinion, Dave, what is the what is the most negative thing that a person can actually do while participating in the occult? I think the most negative thing that a person can do is to be narrow-minded and dogmatic. I think the most negative thing a person can do in experiencing the occult is to assume that they are correct in whatever they're assuming, right? Hmm. Because at that point, if you start assuming that you're right and that no one else is, then you've got no room for course correction if it's actually all in your head, right? So you have to keep in mind when you're working with the occult Mm -hmm. that it is all in your head and it's all in everyone else's head. So you have to take everything with a grain of salt. So it's basically the power of perception. I mean, essentially, but the limits of that are debatable, right? Like, is it just placebo or is placebo what we are observing as an effect from invisible forces? If If somebody wants to participate in the occult, what kind of tools should they use or if they want to reach out to demons? Well, reaching out to demons is super easy. All you have to do to reach out to demons is turn the lights off in your room because it's spooky to you. Demons don't care about light. Light a candle because it's spooky to you. Demons don't care about candles and call for one. If you know their name, great. If you know a little bit about them, even better. It doesn't matter if you don't, though, because you'll experience them whether or not you know anything about them or not. Now, again, whether or not that experience is something that compels you to believe that they exist, that, that your mileage may vary on that. What do you think about all the movies and TV shows that are out there today with that, you know, that touch demonology and the occult and, and, and basically what they make the occult out to be? Well, I like it personally. I like those movies. I feel that See, what, so what we have here with occultism is similar to some of the effects that we have that we see with doctors, right? Doctors wear a white lab coat. They give you a pill. You think that pill is medicine because it comes from a doctor. Right. You yeah. take the pill, you get a placebo. Mm-hmm. So from an occultist, you need some kind of pre-existing expectation of what they're going to do, right? And the way the media portrays occultism and demonology is that we are powerful and scary. And you know, and I like that. And what it does is give us authority. So when we give someone a charm, Mm -hmm. they're not looking at us and deciding whether or not it's going to work based on me. They're looking at me and all the media representations of my job before they decide if it's going to work or not. So what's it like to be a demonologist? I love it. It's super rewarding to me. I get all sorts of weird dreams and I get all sorts of weird people asking me for really (laughs) weird stuff. So, so it sounds like, a dull moment. sounds like you're a guy who enjoys the weird stuff in life. I can't, I mean, I don't make a lot of money. I don't, but I love it. It's my passion. You know, I've got a friend in Montreal who says you're here for a good time, not for a long time. That's the truth right there. Um, <laughs> the work that you do, have you ever felt that you yourself are in any sort of danger? The most danger that I felt that I was in from spirits I mean, I'm, I imagine and I have felt real genuine life-threatening terror, but I wasn't in a situation where I was actually in 
real, genuine, life-threatening terror. So I imagine that at some point, some of these entities have the capacity to make us experience things that we have real and really no right to experience, right? So like, even if I might not have been in danger, Mm -hmm. a lot of people who experience demons really do experience a profound sense of terror. I'm not sure if that's intentional on the demon's part, Mm -hmm. or if it's simply our mind kind of comprehending another entity and kind of freaking out about it because we can't see it, you know? When it comes to the battle between good and evil, heaven and hell, God and Satan, who's more powerful? Uh, You know, according to God, he is. But, you know, the guy that talks the most shit before the fight, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, but you know what? I'm not talking to God right now. He refuses to take my calls. I'm talking to you. (laughs) Well, I don't know, man. Really? If you asked me who was pow- more powerful, yeah. I don't have an opinion on that. If you ask me who I support the most, I'm definitely on the side of hell. All right, young man, stand by. You and I have to take our final break for this hour. And Exonation, sure. my guest this hour is Dave Outlandish. Interesting topic, interesting young man. We're talking about the occult and demonology this hour here in the Exon. And if you'd like to find out more about Dave, uh, on Instagram, it's Dave Outlandish. All one word. The Exxon, a place where people dare to believe, dare to be heard Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern right here on the Exxon Broadcast Network, Talkstar Radio Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, and iHeartRadio. And don't forget, 724-365 on Simul TV. Outlandish is my guest this hour, Exonation, on Instagram, Dave Outlandish. Dave, what would happen if you were born, let's say, in the state of Virginia, and, uh, you know, you weren't introduced uh, by your dad to ceremonial magic, and the Mormon church or structure had nothing to do with with the way you were raised? Do you think you'd be a demonologist and a cultist? You know, I can't really say. But I'm pretty sure that in a parallel universe, a me like that exists. And I hope he's cooler than I am. Or maybe he's not as cool as I am. Hey, listen, pal, you can't improve on perfection, okay? So stop trying. <laughs> That's true. Um, are there many ladies who are demonologists? Or is this kind of a guy's profession? You know, to be honest with you, it's really a matter of labels. So most okay. women who I engage with in this profession don't call themselves occultists. They call themselves witches, right? And so I would say that the amount of witches versus the amount of occultists or wizards mm-hmm. or whatever, there are definitely more witches than there are wizards and occultists. Yeah, I've well, now, I, I, I would. About people, mm-hmm. Go on. If you're talking about people who specifically identify as occultists, yeah. that's more or less a male-dominated identity but people who do magic like 
you know, across the board, I would say it's more heavily populated with women. When you go out to do, um, what is, would we call it an exorcism when you go out to get rid of a demon? Well, I don't do exorcisms. I don't get rid of demons. What do you, what so, do, you do? I, I thought you did all these, all these neat dances and trances and oh, okay. chants to kind of get rid of them. Oh, no, no, no. Oh. So with ghosts, we're trying to make them angry so they show up better, right? We're not trying to get the ghosts to leave. We're trying to get the ghosts mad Why? so they start throwing stuff. Well, because, so say a paranormal investigator goes in. Yeah. They determine that the place is haunted, but they want some better footage or they want more data. So what we do is see if we can get more stuff to happen. And then the paranormal investigators go in afterwards, mm -hmm. and they see if more or less activity occurs. But if the ghost is the remains of a human, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that kind of being disrespectful to the dead? Well, I mean, I feel like the dead deserve as much respect as the living, mm -hmm. you know? And scaring people is something that we as humans kind of have taken to be an advanced art form, right? And I don't feel that I'm out of place scaring dead people any more than people are out of place scaring living people. Okay, I'm trying to follow the logic on that one. You kind of lost me. Explain well, I it mean, to me. Dead people are, I think they deserve as much respect as living people do. And it's not wrong to scare living people, right? If we set up something that's spooky and people walk past it and like, oh gosh, that's scary. People search that out. People love horror movies. People love to be scared in general. So mm -hmm. it's not inhumane to scare a person if we're not hurting them, if we don't cause them any actual harm, you know, I don't feel like it would be inhumane to scare a ghost. We're not causing them any actual harm. We don't even know if they exist or not. So I would say that, that, that not doing what I do simply on the possibility that it would be disrespectful to a potential dead person, it, it kind of, there's a lot of potential for cool experiences that would be wasted. How successful are you? It depends on how you measure success. Well, really. I, I mean, I, you know, you go into these places, you want to instigate the the paranormal mm -hmm. activity into happening. Yeah. So on well, a scale of 1 to 10, how successful are you to actually get the paranormal activity to increase? I would say about a 7 or 8, but I'm very conservative in what I consider success. If I go into an area mm -hmm. and afterwards the paranormal investigation group is like, oh, wow, we got all this new stuff. And then we look it over and really a lot of it could be explained by them being creeped out, right? Then it may seem to them like it was a success. But to me, I didn't really piss off any ghosts. I just scared cameramen, you know? Okay, so what is the ultimate goal then of a paranormal investigation team? Is it more shock and awe is it for entertainment purposes what's their reason and if they want to I, get all the sensationalistic uh, alleged paranormal really, activity i mean that really depends on the team itself you know some people want to go in there and i mean a lot of people who are involved in paranormal investigation mm -hmm. they are either looking for proof or they're looking for a good time for themselves because they already believe it right and so by the time we're doing stuff to a location, try we lost you again. Oh, my, my bad. So I bad demonologist, bad demonologist. We lost you again. Dave, I can't hear you, buddy.
Can't hear me at all now. Now I can. Yeah. Okay. You, you got to pull so that. Most- you got to pull that string in the tin can just a little bit tighter. Yeah, I gotta. <laughs> yeah, I'm not in my place right now. My Wi-Fi, but um, yeah. So a lot of the times, when these paranormal investigation groups come in, they know what they want out of it, and. I'm not, I'm not into faking stuff. I'm not going to throw rocks from off screen. You know, I'm not going to move chairs when the camera's out of the room. Mm -hmm. I'm not in it just for the sensationalism, but I mean, I do like the pageantry. I do like putting on the show for the investigators, for the ghosts, but I mean, ultimately I'm doing it because I want to see if it works. So would you consider yourself an entertainer? I think I, I would consider myself an entertainer and an artist Definitely. Because I don't really, I mean, mm-hmm. I very rarely make impacts on people's lives other than for entertainment purposes or for artistic purposes, okay. right? So, so how do you make a living at this? Oh, I, I mean, I don't make a lot of money doing this. Like I said, I was in the military and yeah. I got blown up a bunch in Iraq. So, you oh, know, I'm sorry I to hear that, buddy. To make a living. Well, I mean, I don't need to make a living out of it. Right. I can make enough money to support myself doing it. Okay. Um, tell me about your youth uh, and how the magic and your father and the Mormon church played within your well, life. So I'm not, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the Mormon church. Very. They have a lot of occultist-like, you know, content. Their temples are very much set up with occult sentiment, you know, sentiment in mind. There, the way their priesthood is structured is very similar to these occult orders, and that's because the founder, Joseph Smith, was influenced by these occult orders during the time of the foundation of the church. And so being in that environment as a child, mm-hmm. the idea that we could do a ceremony and contact the spirits of the dead was something that I had taken for granted as something to be true from a young age. Well, couldn't you say that about any religion? For example, that Christians pray to their departed ones. They have ceremonies when it comes to baptismal, marriage, uh, burial rites. And in fact, the Anglican Church used to have in its its prayer book the rites of exorcism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, most occultists and most Satanists that I know were raised Christian. So what do you think the biggest conversion point between Christianity and occultism is? For me, it's simply the rejection of God's authority. Like, I mean, even if I, if, if I believe he existed, mm-hmm. which I'm not sure I do or not, but if I did, I wouldn't believe he had the authority to tell me to do anything. I wouldn't believe he had the authority to tell me not to do magic. Right. right? Why would he? It's kind of something that people assume based on the Bible and based on the teachings of Christianity. But uh, most occultists that I know, the conversion point is simply the rejection of the authority of God. Do you believe that uh, the one of the main reasons or many reasons why people are walking away from the established religious philosophies is that they have not kept up with the times and people are searching and looking for a place where they belong when it comes to uh, some sort of religious order or organization. Well, I, I think that the success of a lot of these religious institutions mm-hmm. relies on the isolationism of their communities. And with the advent of the internet and, you know, our hyper-connectivity as a culture, right. you rarely get the kind of isolation that's needed for this kind of dogmatic, you know, thought-shaping of the youth. 
So what we have now is an entire generation or two generations at this point of young people who it was simply impossible to isolate. And the lack of isolation leads them to questioning the authenticity of the scriptures. They're subjected to propaganda efforts mm -hmm. from all sides on the Internet. Sure. So I think it's, you know, it's a it's a mixture of these religions not keeping with the times, but also the hyperconnectivity we have as a culture now makes it really, really, really difficult to isolate people like they used to be able to. Dave, I've got about a minute left before you and I have to say so long. Um, sure. How do how do people know when they're looking for a demonologist for one reason or another, who is is credible and who is not? Well, I would say that the way to know a credible demonologist versus a non-credible one is if what they do for you works. And that's really the only way to know wow. is if what they do for you works or not. Dave, but, I want to, whoops, I'm sorry, quickly. Yeah, just don't pay a lot of money for it. That's all I'm saying. All right, Dave, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Do me a favor, come back and visit us again. Absolutely, anytime. All right, Dave. Dave Outlandish has been my guest this hour, Exonation, and to find out more about Dave and the work that he does, just go on Instagram, Dave Outlandish, all one word, and I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news at six and a half minutes past the top of the hour. As the Exxon continues with yours truly, Rob McConnell, www.xzbn.net is our network. And to find out all about the Exxon Radio Show, www.exxonradiotv.com. And last but not least, to find out how you can get your, uh, read your online edition of the Exxon Chronicles, www.xchroniclesnewspaper.com. Don't go away.